The Money Cafe is brought to you by Eureka Report, your one-stop shop for all things finance. To sign up for your free 15-day trial, head to eurekareport.com.au. Now it's time to enjoy today's episode. Hello, I'm Alan Kohler, founder of Eureka Report, finance presenter on the ABC News and columnist for The New Daily. And I'm James Thompson, Chanticleer columnist at the Australian Financial Review. And we are The, the Money, Money Cafe. Cafe. Senior Chanticleer columnist. <laughs> oh, yeah, Aren't soon, you? soon, soon. I Tony- mean, there's a, there's, a, there's a cast of them. Well, there's, there's, uh, there's two of us. Tony Boyd is retiring in the end of March, so yep. we had... Um, at the Financial Review Summit, there were many tributes paid to Tony. It was really nice, actually. Right. It's uh, one of these things, as perhaps you and I will discover one day, Alan, when you retire, that's when people say nice things about you, but not before. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so, yeah, it's been yeah, great. I'm that- sure people have been saying nice things about Tony for years because he's right. such a nice fellow. And uh, I was asked to write some words to be read out at the floor on the floor of the Financial Review when yes. his retirement event occurs, which I... Julie did. Excellent. Great. And um, described him as a an AFR legend. Oh, that's beautiful. Um, that's very true. Among other things. And um, and next year we've got the 50th anniversary of Shonicleer. Yeah, so we'll hopefully Since we'll get the band back together at some stage and talk about drumsticks and <laughs> chicken wings and all that stuff. Be great. I reckon there could be some headaches next day, I reckon. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, bit of action on the... Uh, central bank front this week. Oh gosh, hasn't there? So uh, we had two speeches yesterday. Well, no, not speeches, but we had uh, uh, Jay Powell, the chairman of the Fed, talking to Congress. Yes. Uh, at two a.m. our time. Yes. Didn't get up for it, but I did watch no, a few I, clips later. I didn't get up for it either. But um, and then at eight fifty-five yes. a.m. Um, <laughs> Phil Lowe got up at the AFR Business Summit. Yes. And basically said what he'd already said. Yes, with a few tweaks, I reckon. Yeah, and he, he kind of made it clearer that uh, they're thinking of pausing. Yeah, he did. He made it clearer. And, and I think he threw maybe a couple of olive branches to the to the people who think uh, he's really squeezing the economy. And one of the interesting things he said was, we've worked out we could get to the target, the, our inflation target, six months earlier, but that would cause more job losses than we're prepared to stomach. So I think he's trying to say, I know this is hard. I know you think I'm the bad guy, but I'm. we are thinking about you. I do have I'm really you in my a good mind. guy. I'm really a good guy. I'm That's really right. I'm a good guy. I'm, doing, I'm, I'm, I'm going soft on you. But oh, <laughs> yeah, That's right. I do wonder, Alan, and I've, I've sort of thought about this, and, and he had this great line because he's meeting mental health people and suicide prevention people. So he's... He's understanding it. Good on him for meeting them. That's that's great. And he's sort of saying, this is weighing on my heart. The one thing I wonder, though, is Jay Powell, it wasn't that long ago since Jay Powell said, you know, inevitably we'll pause at some stage too. And what happened? Inflation kicked back up. The markets kicked back up. And now he's having to be the hard man again. Yeah, that's right. So what he said to Congress at 2 a.m. our yeah. time was that they're thinking of uh, increasing the pace of rate hikes. And the market's now starting to price a 50 basis point increase hmm. in the Fed funds rate, um, up from 25. 60% chance. And so the, the, the cash futures market 
uh, in the US has gone up. Yeah. And in Australia, it's gone down. Yes, yes. So it's very interesting. And the result of that is uh, uh, an Australian dollar under 66. <laughs> yeah, it's been smashed. <laughs> um, I did. I heard there was a great interview with a guy called Ken Griffin, who's a, he runs a big, massive US investment firm called Citadel. They trade one in every four shares in the US market. That is massive. They made 26 billion US in profit last year. Jesus, why wasn't I told? <laughs> well, he, and he, he said that his firm was caught out by the sort of the, the inflation shock, the new inflation shock in January. And he said, basically, they're changing their trying to read the market every three weeks. So, A, don't feel bad that you, you and I don't understand where things are going because even the pros don't. But his message to Jay Powell was, can you please stop talking? Because the more they talk, the more they sort of try to be the good guy. They twist themselves in knots. They try and make out that it's not so bad when the message probably needs to be, we're hiking till we get this done. Yeah, That's but it. The, but the central banks, all of the central banks now have, uh, have decided that talking is oh. a monetary policy tool. I know. They love talking. You know. Talking, talking, And they talking. won't shut up. I know. And look, it was great to have Lowe at the summit. He took lots of questions from the floor. He's really thoughtful, but... You know, I, I do wonder if he muddled the message a little bit because his message needs to be, we've got to get on top of this. And he sort of says that in a speech, but then he says, oh, yeah, but we're pausing. But it's hurting my heart. It's hurting my heart. So yeah. it's a fine line to tread. And in fact, it, well, he calls it a narrow path. A narrow path. <laughs> a narrow path to yes. a soft landing. That's what he says. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if you saw Elizabeth Warren. She's this Democrat senator, quite aggressive, quite mm. left-leaning. She really took it to pal. And a lot of people have sort of gone, oh, Elizabeth Warren, what's she on about? But I reckon it was a great question. What did she ask? She said, your projections so show that to get inflation back to the target, it's going to result in 2 million job losses. What do you say to the two million people? What's your message to them? Why should they have to lose their jobs? I mean, I think it's a great question. Like, sure. And he had a good answer. He said, um, I'm not just thinking about those two million people. I'm thinking about everyone who's being hurt by inflation. And if what do you want us to do? Just leave inflation at 5 to 6%? Because that's going to hurt a lot more than two million people. Oh, that's a reasonable sort of for the greater good type answer. But, you know... I think it's, I think it's sort of good that these guys have to explain themselves. Right? Sure, I agree. <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, what else happened at the summit, the AFR Business Summit? Well, I think the AFR. By the way, yes. the AFR is becoming an events business. It is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's an event every week. Yeah, I think there's we're heading for sort of eighteen or twenty this year. So, look, and they're they're a lot of work, but geez, it's interesting to meet people on the floor of these things and have this sort of two-way conversation with your readers. It's, it's great. I reckon the other interesting thing we had was um, Nouriel Rabini, who's a New York University professor, former advisor to Bill Clinton, commonly known as Dr. Doom, and gee, did he live up to his name. He, he predicted that the human race could become obsolete because of artificial intelligence, amongst many other predictions. But, but his general message, I think, was inflation's here to stay because governments are going to have to spend a hell of a lot of money on climate change, on social safety nets for things like inter, uh, automation of jobs. They're going to have to spend a lot of money on defence. They're going to have to spend a lot of money on inequality and digitisation of economies. But debts are already, government debts are already huge. 
no one wants higher taxes, no one wants spending cuts. So what? How is this going to play out? And I think it's a that, the question I that's the question I'm still pondering three days later. How does this work out? I, I don't know, but it's um fascinating when you think about investing. Like you, you it, things are going to be volatile. Returns are going to be probably lower. I've just been I've just spent this morning writing an item for Eureka Report on the weekend entitled Turning Japanese and looking at this very question as to, um, you know, what, what's the budget challenge? This is just yeah. Australia, not the rest of the world. Yeah. What's the budget challenge? The answer is a uh, structural deficit of $50 billion now rising to $70 billion yep. in 10 years' time. That's the challenge. That's yeah. what you've got to do. So, you know, everyone's losing their minds over $2 billion uh, tax <laughs> increase on yeah. superannuation, yes. right? So forget about increasing taxes by $50 billion or $70 billion. Yeah. And are we going to cut uh, spending by that much? No way, because, uh, you know, NDIS is blowing out. Everything's We're all getting out. old. Yeah. Um, and also nobody's thinking about the, what you just said about climate change, the impact of climate change on government spending, yeah. which is going to be enormous. Enormous. And, um, and so, uh, so we're just going to have to be like Japan and not worry about it. Yeah. Well, maybe I mean, that's the answer. Well, I don't know, because you're right. What's the other answer? I mean, the, Japan's got a, a budget deficit of 6.5% of GDP versus our 1.5% of GDP. Then we're all getting upset about that. Um, but its budget deficit is 6.5% of GDP, and its uh, government debt is 263% of GDP versus our 37% of GDP. So... And they're okay. They're they fine. along. No, they're fine. Yeah. They're fine. No problem. I'm, I'm I mean, heading it is there true for holiday that, soon. It is true that the Bank of Japan owns 43% of government debt. <laughs> yeah. And the, re- the rest of it's owned by Japanese citizens who are fine with 0.5% interest, right? Yeah. So that's yeah. what makes it work for yeah. Japan. Yeah. You know. So, so you, need, you need willing lenders, don't you? Well, that's you need willing lenders who are prepared to accept low interest rates because our bond rate is now three point six percent, which is turning into a very large expenditure for the government, right? Yeah, yeah. And I don't, you know, I mean, then it's so that's the problem. This is Rubini's point about inflation. He reckons central banks are going to have to blink because the higher they push rates up the more unsustainable these big government debts become. Sure. So, and, and the central banks are going to have to go back to buying government bonds, Yeah, I think. Yeah, at some um, stage perhaps. Yeah, yeah. So, anyway, I think it's some anyway, big you've picture. Had a, you've big had picture a lovely things. time. You've had a lovely time in Sydney at the I summit. Have. I have. I know you wanted to raise the safeguard mechanism. That oh, was we discussed. Got, we haven't got time. Oh, yeah. Uh, j- just quickly, I think there's... I think there's pretty good support for business, from business, for the safeguard mechanism with some exceptions. Um, some of these wrinkles where, you know, the, the the most obvious one is cement. It's a great example where we've got a couple of cement players here who are going to be under the safeguard mechanism, but imported cement not. So imported cement becomes cheaper and we just whoosh the emissions go overseas. Uh, those sort of wrinkles, you can understand why they feel the playing field's not level and the overall impact on... R- emissions is not there. Well, uh, one of the biggest emitters, bigger than the cement companies, uh, is Qantas Airways. Yeah. And not fairly closely followed by Virgin. And and they're not going to be flying electric planes. They are not. Very soon. No. Um, So, 
uh, what I don't understand is how come all these companies in the safeguard mechanism, 215 of them, aren't telling the government to ban new gas projects and coal projects like the Greens because they come into the safeguard mechanism and that 4.9% per annum reduction increases because the emissions because of the emissions from yeah. say Scarborough yeah. the Scarborough gas field or Beetaloo um, Scarborough's due to start in 2026 right yep um, now it's going to I don't quite know what the emissions from that are going to be but they're going to be a lot yeah it's going to be a, a lot of emissions which come into the safeguard mechanism and suddenly the task for everybody is that much harder but uh, but how are you going to firm all the renewables we need between now and then without gas well sure but you know um, but, 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 but it's all very well to say that they're all in favour of the safeguard mechanism, but I, but I don't think they realise. And it's not just gas projects. Any big new factories, whatever they might be, um, are we'll going to, to the, the will add to the task. But they have to come into. They have to go into the safeguard mechanism if they're emitting more than one hundred thousand tonnes a year. And so, the the task. That's how the mechanism should work, though, isn't it? Sure. I'm not saying it can't. A, it's but a it, net zero target. It's not a... Well, it's 43% by 2030. That's the yeah, one that matters. Yeah, there's going to be puts and takes with this. This is a transition. It's not going to be... It's no, got to be bumpy. Sure. Well, yeah. I'm sure. It's going to be real bumpy. <laughs> it's going to be hugely bumpy. I'll, I mean, every, I don't think these companies have any idea what they're in for. Oh, the, d- does anyone? Like the, mean, this, this, the size of this transition is... Extraordinary. The CBA's, I quoted in my column in the, uh, in the New Daily, the CBA's columnist, uh, uh, analyst who's done some modelling of all this, yeah. reckons that the companies in the, in the safeguard mechanism, 215 of them, have to, on average, reduce their production, just their production, yeah, yeah. by 0.3% per annum between now and 2030 in order to meet the target, right? But none of them want to incre- want to cut their production. No, no. They want to increase production. But doesn't that mean they're going to have to find other ways to reduce emissions? But there are no other ways. I mean, as you say, cement, airlines. I mean, you go th- if you go through the list on the clean energy regulators yeah. website, and you, and you look at actually look at them, none of them has an easy way to reduce emissions. No, none of them. But the, I mean, yeah. they just can't do it. So what are they going to do? They're going to buy accus. Australian carbon credit units, yep. offsets. They're just going to buy tons of them. And, you know, th- so, um, I mean, we're, we're going to be bumping into trees. There's going to be so many trees <laughs> planted in this country. <laughs> it's going to be – we're all going to be living in a forest. Oh, well, that'd probably be nice. It'd be nice. Everyone's going to win. Yeah. We'll have our massive Japanese debt, forests everywhere, and away we go. Um, we have to answer questions. Yes, let's do it. Let's do it. Luke says, I've recently read where the number of loans rolling off a fixed rate to a variable rate is in the high 800,000s. Interested to know how many that would leave rolling off fixed rates in 2024, 2025 and beyond. He wants a chart. I've got got a chart. He's got one. From Jardin, their excellent banking analyst, Carlos Caucho, which we will make sure is included in the transcript. Um, And it shows basically the peak is in September this year. And then it falls off quite dramatically uh, into January and then again falls off through the rest of the year. Uh, There's still, though, in about sort of September 2024, there's still $9 billion of fixed-rate mortgages to roll off. Right. 
So, and how many of them? Is it is 800,000? Yeah, I right? think it's more than that actually now. It's more I think it's 800, about 800,000 this year and then more over the next few years. Okay. So, I'll we'll make sure that um, chart of how the wave uh, crests and falls is included in our transcript. Yeah. Matt says, I've heard you talk previously about InvestSmart's ETF portfolio and capped fee approach. Is it to correct to say the fees are capped at $500 when the underlying ETFs will also incur a management fee? Perhaps an investor could save even more money in fees if they invested in the ETF directly. Oh, they could. That's true. Um, uh, exactly. But the thing is that um, what uh, in this in InvestSmart's case, what they do is they manage a portfolio of ETFs. Um, they keep an eye on them and they do your administration and your tax. So they're providing a service and it's $452 a year, not 500 so the question is, is that service worth the money for you? Yeah. And, you know, everyone's got a different answer to that and you've got to look at it in that in those terms. Mm. You've got to look at the, the service that InvestSmart is providing yep. for that money yep. uh, in addition to, obviously, the other things. But there are other ETFs that invest in other ETFs. So there are sort of um, two-tier investment platforms around. Yeah. Um, and Not a bad I think idea, we've got though. another. I think we've got another question later on on this very subject, and it is true that you have to look at the, the two layers of fees. Yes, you have to understand what they are. because yep. quite often the top layer that you're investing in doesn't actually say or disclose <laughs> what the other layer <laughs> of fees layer, yeah. is. Okay. Uh, Eric says, "Would you like to make considered comments on the commonly held belief that renewable energy will make electric power cheaper through time?" Uh, well. Solar and wind are already cheaper than coal and gas. Yes. So it'll take a while, but of course that will that the, will happen. The point, Eric, is definitely through time. And, and yes, solar and wind are cheaper, but the cost of getting that solar and wind to uh, into the grid and in, and then onto the users that's going to be very expensive. So it'll take a while. And, and also, there's uh, batteries to be built. Batteries to be well, batteries. Of scale to be invented, and then well, there's there's pumped hydro, there's yeah. uh, lithium batteries, large scale batteries of all sorts yeah. are going to have to be because um, almost all of the solar and wind are going to have to be matched with yep. storage. But all of that, and so all of that infrastructure is going to need to be paid for. So up that and sort of upfront. So yeah, Eric's right. It'll be cheaper through time, and that amount yep. of time is going to be a fair while. Uh, Tom, Tom's got a question about Australian strategic materials, wondering what's going on with the share price. The answer is we don't know, but um, uh, we're going to put in a – I've put in a, a uh, pitch or a bid for an interview with the person who runs it, and we'll find out. So keep an eye on Eureka Report's CEO interviews. Okay, question from Anon. Uh, it is all very well to hear that you can save $6 million in super as a couple, quote-unquote, before the 30% kicks in, but it is nearly impossible to rebalance between funds if both are over the transfer balance cap of $1.7 million. The solution should be part of the proposal. That is, allow it. Is an SMSF the only option? What a hassle. Am I missing something? Uh I don't think he's missing anything. I don't it's, think he's missing anything. No, no, it's a no, hassle. I, it's, I think it's... Yeah. I mean... Uh, this this change is designed to make your life harder. And on? And to pay more money. And to pay more money. There's no other way to put it. Yeah. Ken says, there's so much horrifying devil in the detail. How can it be possibly a good policy to apply income tax to unrealised capital gains? Where will the money come from to pay the extra tax? Last time we had a Dr. Jim as Federal Treasurer, it didn't end well. <laughs> 
Well remembered, Ken. Uh, hope, hopefully the present Dr. Jim won't be as incompetent as the last one. Well, the money to come from to pay the tax will come from your super earnings, so we can tick that one off, can't no, we? No, no, they're also saying, Treasurer's also saying that the uh, earnings includes unrealised yes. capital gains. yes. This is a controversial point, isn't oh, it? Oh, that's to say the least. But do you... It doesn't quite feel right to me. I don't know. I don't know what you think. What? Unrealised capital gains should be taxed in that way. You don't think they should be? Oh, I think it opens up a Pandora's box. Of course. It? No, no. I mean, uh, but the thing is, what I like about it is that the... Um, None of the press releases or, uh, you know, cons- cons- consultation papers mentioned about the unrealised capital gain thing. Yeah. It was buried on page five of a fact sheet. Yes. That was, you like that. When, you know, tre- Treasury does this all the time. <laughs> it, try- it sort of sneaks in a, f- a, t- a cheeky little kite. Yes. Uh, and hopes that nobody notices. And then off they go. Yeah, okay, but... Then everyone notices and goes, hey, wait a minute. So you admire the subterfuge, but... No, Is I it don't. a good idea? Well, no, because as you say, it's Pandora's box. I mean, what are they going to do? Uh, tax the unrealised capital gains on your investment uh, house? Yeah. Because uh, where are you going to get the money for that? I don't know. You have to sell the house. Yeah. I mean, that's crazy. Yeah. No, no, I don't think it's going to happen. I mean, even even taxing unrealised capital gains in your super fund I means you're going to have to sell your shares. Yes. <laughs> it's no. It's just a weird idea. Yeah. No, Surely no. it gets consulted out. Uh, Brenton, I'm a great fan of Stephen Mayne, who's not here to defend himself and all the work he does. Yeah, but what about James Thompson? <laughs> yeah, but I, Come on. Anyway, they're bagging Stephen, not me. Um, but, but his comment last week that Phil Lowe should keep his job because he was able to fend off questions from politicians in Canberra for a couple of hours really made me chuckle. Decades of Senate estimates are based on politicians thinking they got the answer from generations of public service. If that is the criteria to be governor of the RBA, then I know hundreds of people suitable. <laughs> Uh, keep up the frank and fearless work. Seriously, I won't miss the show for quids. That's possibly more of a comment than a question from uh, Brenton. Did you have is. a point, though? It's Yeah, yeah. You'd have no trouble dodging the politicians of Australia, would you? Me? Yeah. No. No, but you'd, you'd dance, put rings around them. <laughs> Look, I mean, I, I yeah, I know what Brenton's saying. I think there is some point to the process. It, it is good for the governor to have to explain his decisions. Okay, maybe... It's better. It'd be better if he had journalists asking the questions and politicians, but I think it serves a purpose. Yeah, yeah. Daniel says, I read Gareth Hutchins' piece in the ABC on alternative ways to curb inflation. Compulsory savings was one of them. Yep. Um, that would still be inflationary, wouldn't it? If savers want to return, their money has to be redeployed into the economy. Then, no, no, I don't think so. But, but I, I, Gareth's piece was terrific, really interesting, and I actually did a follow-up piece this morning right. on New Daily on... Uh, the headline was monetary policy is doing too much work uh, and remarking that uh, fiscal policy is um, in retirement <laughs> and there is no fiscal policy except when there's a crisis and the politicians get to hand money out. Yes, they're good at so that. So what they don't want to do is take money back. Yes. So when it comes time to reduce aggregate demand, the politicians just want to leave it to the RBA. Yeah. And the problem with that is that, you know, that it's just too narrow and it affects people who have borrowed. It, you know, the thing about fiscal policy, if it can theoretically, everyone. Yeah. you can, you know, you can basically affect everybody. Yes, although to, by the same amount. To be fair, they are having a crack at some fiscal policy with the super caps. 
that's an example of trying to take a bit more back. That's true, but it's not being done for macroeconomic reasons. It's not the the, no, the reason no. for it is not to sort of dampen down the economy as interest rate increases are. It's in order to raise a bit more money for the for the government. Yeah, Daniel does have an idea here. What if we increase the level of principal repaid on mortgages rather than increase interest rates? Folks would benefit from their disinflationary actions later on in life. Yeah, fair enough. But but the problem, Daniel, is that the government politicians in the government. Don't want to do anything no. that causes any kind of pain. And it would be hard. I mean, some people could afford to repay more of their principal and others wouldn't. So so what, so what I wrote about this morning was was a suggestion made by Nicholas Gruen yes. some time ago, uh, which was, what about we have a an independent fiscal authority like the Reserve Bank who has the authority and the responsibility and the ability to increase and reduce taxes within a certain band... For macroeconomic reasons, uh, and it is independent of politicians, right? So you can say, you know, uh, when the economy's uh, in trouble, this little this body can reduce taxation yep. by five percent. Okay, and that's what they have the power to do. And when the economy's booming and there's inflation getting out of control, they can increase taxes by five percent. And the politicians can say, "Don't blame us." Yeah. I mean, I think there's something in that. Yeah. Well, I mean, interestingly, the Singaporean government recently increased their GST, started right. January 1, in order to help the uh, the, the monetary policy response. Yeah, right. So, so uh, yeah, the, you, could do it, you could do it with GST. You could, in fact, you could focus it only on the GST. Yeah. Um, this is the problem. The government doesn't want to do that. Yes. You know? But if you had a separate independent authority, I mean, the Singaporean government doesn't care what anyone thinks about it, no, so that's, that's fine. Yes. <laughs> that's the opposite of a separate... Uh, uh, yes. Although I would say, Alan... Um, Poor old Phil Lowe's been uh, uh, facing plenty of heat for interest rates. Imagine if he also had control of the GST. They'd be, they'd be people would be camping outside his house, wouldn't they? Yeah, <laughs> I know. I agree. Now, listen, we need to move along a bit. So, what about we chuck? We go over the page to. I don't know. What do you think, uh, Mike? Your turn. Yes. Uh, in this week's episode, Mike asks, in this week's episode, Stephen said that he thought the CGT, capital gains tax exemption, on the family home should go. The comment was made at around the 17-minute mark, and I was surprised that Alan didn't react. Surely this is a terrible idea. It would make moving house, for whatever reason, almost impossible, as many people would lose a massive chunk of their wealth in taxes and therefore be unable to afford a similar property elsewhere. Already the decision to move house is hard enough with agent fees on the sale and stamp duty on the new home, often well north of 100k. Adding CGT would only make it worse. What am I missing? Uh, I didn't react because I think it's a waste of time talking about it. <laughs> I mean, it's just not going to happen. What? I mean, you know, oh, let's talk about something else. Well, I think there's one thing that uh, Mike is missing. The prices of all houses would go down because the CGT uh, tax would hit everyone who moves, right? Yeah. So there would be a an overall impact on the on the price of houses. So that would sort of... I mean, yeah, fair enough. But look, I do think that given the structural deficit, there probably has to be some kind of, some form of wealth tax. You know, I don't think, I mean, the easy thing to do would be to whack up GST, you know, permanently to get more money. But that's such a shocking tax, GST, because it's flat and everyone, and it's hard, it hits poor people the hardest. Hang on, you were saying before we, we could just muddle through. Japanese style. And okay, I'm just no, no. Well, okay, tax. all right. No, well, if if you if you, I mean, yeah, sure. You <laughs> just do nothing with taxes, and off we go. That's fine. Yeah. I mean, but if you if you're in favour of budget repair, 
proper yes. budget repair, then the question is what taxes have to go up. Yeah, yeah. And I'm saying it should be some sort of progressive tax that's, that hits well, rich people harder than poor people. Yeah. Which is not GST. Yeah, So I'm, I'm saying if you're going to do budget repair, probably needs to be a wealth tax of some sort. Yep. Um, so one way to do that would be a capital gains tax on houses over $10 million. Yes. Yep. You know? I yep. mean, mightn't raise enough money because they'd all stay put. Yeah. I mean, everyone with a house over $10 million just wouldn't ever Never move. Never <laughs> <laughs> They'd stay where they are. Yeah. That's true. So, um, no, I think probably yeah. an inheritance tax. Probably has to be an inheritance tax because everyone dies. Yes. You know? Yeah, they do. Can't <laughs> get out of that. They can't get out of that. It's unavoidable. <laughs> yes, we might have just lost half our listeners with the idea of an inheritance tax, but play on. <laughs> uh, um, Luke says, what about learning from your mistakes? What a great bit of experience Dr. Phil Lowe has now got. <laughs> exactly. I think rather than de- declaring... Deciding on his future appointment by how he performed a year ago, we should look at how he's performing now. In the current climate, do you think he's doing a good job? And I think, James, you think he is. I I think he's doing an okay job. I I, I think he's admitted his mistakes. Jeez, it's a hard role. I mean, I've spoken to some CEOs over reporting season and they've got no idea what's coming next. They think they've got a basic idea, but really they've got no idea where the economy is going to go. There's so much uncertainty. A setting monetary policy in that, you know, when the data's... I mean, Phil Lowe made the point, there's so many record highs and record lows in the data at the moment. Like, what do you... He was almost saying, what do you want me to do? It's a fair question, but I don't think that changes the fact that he's not going to be have his contract renewed. <laughs> no, no, I agree. He's yeah. not going to have his contract renewed. That's right. Yeah. And, uh, and I think they're going to bring in someone from outside. Yes. Cola for the RBA is the campaign I'm launching today. Oh, that's <laughs> right. <laughs> no, 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 no. No. I don't think so. Okay. Fair enough. Um, but yes, uh, someone, else, someone from outside. Yeah. Possibly even someone from outside Australia, as the Bank of England did with Mark Carney. Yes. Yes. And, you, know, I, you know, I think Mark Carney was probably a success. Yeah, I, I guess so. It's, I mean, I, he was there for a while. He didn't get fired after two years. I mean, it wasn't like no. an obvious failure. It's just so hard to – this is going to be a problem with everything. CEOs, for example. You know, CEOs retiring and they get great, great accolades. And I was thinking about this today. It's going to be a lot easier to look back at a CEO who's been there for the last 10 years and you've got the tailwinds of low rates – private capital, rising asset prices, healthy economy. And then you look at the, the the bunch of CEOs in the next 10 years, they're going to have high inflation, high rates, you know, low returns, falling asset prices, which – and they'll inevitably cop the, the, the raw end of the stick and we'll say, oh, they did a terrible job. But it is hard to judge these things. The, the, the challenge – I've written a column on this today – the challenge for the next set of CEOs is building – Massive test. Well, look, I've got to say my heart is absolutely bleeding. I could tell. For them. I could tell that. I mean, <laughs> you know, they're going to sort of struggle by on $2 million a year. Yes. Uh, worrying about their superannuation cap. Well. <laughs> and well, CGT on about, their $10 million home. About how are we going to keep the wolf from the door? <laughs> I know, I know. Uh, yeah, that's fair enough. But it's <laughs> it's it's an interesting test. I think we give a... We, we, we give a lot of accolades to CEOs over the last 10 years. Oh, they've done an incredible job. But they haven't had the challenges that the next 
set of CEOs are going to face. That's my point. No, that's a good point, James. I think it's an excellent, <laughs> excellent point. Thank you. Uh, how are we going for time, Greg? Wind it up. Wind it up. One more question. Uh, you can decide. Okay. Every other week we hear forecast about interest rates from what the big... What question is this? I can't this is Yass's question. Where is that? This is a question from Yass. Oh, yes. Okay. He says, every other week we hear a forecast about interest rates from the big banks. Does the data exist to know how often they get it right or wrong? <laughs> and two, given how fundamental interest rates are to their business model, how often should they be expected to get it right before they get the sack? 50% or 90%? This is a, this is a good question. I agree. And, and where is the data about... About bank economists' forecasts, there is none. The uh, uh, the Fin Review's rear window column did have a look recently and decided they are all pretty putrid. Um, and there's a tendency, even among some bank economists, to say, "Well, our forecast is right, but what the RBA has done is wrong." Which I do. I love that one. Um, but I think the point that is sort of missed here. I mean, Commonwealth Bank got the call for the first rate rise early and right but since then they've been off the mark they've thought rates were going to peak a lot earlier than they did but i don't think that those rate forecasts feed into the bank's activity in any major way like yes might be suggesting that their you know their lending book is not being the, the amount of risk they want to take in their lending books not being decided by those forecasts. Oh, absolutely, yes. So, yeah, yeah, that's so don't, absolutely true. So when you see the forecasts, see them like the RBA's forecasts. You know, they're, they're the best, best guesses. But they are. But, but, the, but the bank economists and economic departments do, do act as advisors to the CEO. They do, yeah. Um, so they do inform the bank's opinions about what, what's coming. Yes, but I don't think that translates to big risks being taken like... You know, CBA hasn't gone, well, we think the rate's going to peak early. We're going to go out and lend like, you know, crazy. That, that's just not how uh, it works. I've spoken to each of the bank economists about this kind of thing. Yeah. And uh, they all say that, that they've got total editorial independence. Yeah. Which, which makes sense, of course. That is to say that the CEO can't tell them what to say. Yes. Um, and uh, they all kind of do advise the CEO, but, but whatever they believe is what they say. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, yes, don't be too hard on them. Everyone's guessing at the moment, including the central bank that has more economists than anyone and better data probably, or mainly. Everyone's guessing, everyone's guessing all the time. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's really what this period has told us. And that's like, that is the point of... When rates are higher and inflation's moving, it, it becomes harder. You, d- you don't know what's coming at you. And we've got this pool of savings. There's so many variables. What a time to be alive. Well, the Fin Review occasionally publishes the full list of uh, economists, e- economists' forecasts. Yes. And there's about 35 of them, I think. I think so, yeah. Quarterly we do that. And, and um, the range is yeah. amazing. Yeah. I mean, there's just there's such a range... That that uh, half of them are very very wrong, or at least <laughs> you know, and, and the the group in the middle somewhere are going to be probably okay. But some, you know, it's it's like investors though, isn't it? You can be wrong for the right reasons. You, you can do all the work and assess the data and use your historical models and still get it wrong. So I think that's just the nature of the beast at the moment, particularly. You know, they, they, they got away, Alan, for, for 10 years with the RBA barely moving, so it was pretty easy. <laughs> I know, that's right. <laughs> uh, that's it for today's Money Cafe. Thanks very much for listening, everyone. Stephen Mann will be back next week. Send in your question to 
themoneycafe at eurekareport.com.au and we'll answer it. Until then, I'm Alan Kohler, founder of Eureka Report. And I'm James Thompson, Chanticleer columnist at the Australian Financial Review. I'll see you next week.